Thanks for listening to another life-transforming message from the team here at C3 Southwest Washington. To find out more about our church, visit c3swwa.com. And so today we're going to dive into a couple different messages. I'm going to be speaking this morning. Pastor Seth will be here in the second gathering, so make sure you tune into that. Um, Before I read the scripture, I, I want you to lean in just for a special prayer right here. Because we are just about at the finish line with our discussions with this other church. And I don't want to make any announcements before, before it's done, because then there's even a process after that. But I just, I tell you, it's a weird thing to step up and know in your heart that God has something for you that seems impossible. But when you speak it out, when you speak it out, it sets into things some motion. That's how you became family. Do you? Yes. Do you? Yes. That's a powerful yes, powerful yes. So be in prayer. I want to talk to you today about the biblical family. I'm going to pray over you in just a second. I'm going to read the scripture. Therefore, a man out of Ephesians chapter five, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And everyone said, amen. Some of you need to consider that a little bit more. This mystery, then this is the important part. The mystery is profound. What mystery? But what I am saying refers to Christ and the church. Wow. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see she respects her husband. Father, I thank you for each person in this room. Father, I pray for the ability to communicate all that needs to be covered. And I pray for your blessing. Let us see the centric nature of family. It's not a social construct that somebody can just redesign. It's a covenant that you spoke into existence that comes laden with power to change the world. And Father, the same is true of the church. They are mirror images, left hand and right hand of one another. They have the same purpose, the same function, the same leadership, the same impact, and the same blessing from you. And God, I pray that when we understand as you understand, when we value as you value, when we see as you see, it unlocks these principles and allows us to step in to our best life. And so I pray for your touch in Jesus' name. And everyone said, "Mm, amen. High five if you can, the person next to you. And you at home, high five someone and turn the fireplace on, get a little warmer in there. Okay, listen, I've got actually nine pages of notes. And if anyone would like a copy of them afterwards, I will certainly give them to you. I don't know that I will cover it all. Uh, I was going to be preaching on the, uh, the, go back to the title there, Dave, just for a second. Uh, The title of my message is The Biblical, but I put in parentheses church because I'm talking about the biblical family. But I'm also talking about the church family. They are really one and the same. As I already said, as you looked at the scripture, this profound mystery, as Paul is talking to a man about his wife and vice versa, he says, I'm telling you a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ in the church, the husband and the bride, and then the family that's built out of that relationship. And so I'm going to try to cover a bunch of stuff. I'm going to hit a couple things that might be controversial for you, but they've already been established in our doctrine. So I'm just going to present them to you so that you understand and some other challenges and then some thoughts for myself. Okay, you ready to go? You're going to, you're going to need to run with me, okay? Uh, as we talk about this, family and church are covenant relationships 
That's key. Covenant relationships. They're mirrored together in Scripture, right hand, left hand. They are mirror images of one another, and the principles are cross-applicable. Uh, uh, a biblical family is established as a husband and a wife come together as one. Amen. Amen. And the family is extended as they give birth to children and raise them to maturity. Amen? Amen. This is not a social construct. This is not something that a bunch of people in a back room said, hey, I've got a great business idea. This was breathed out of the mouth of God. And you and I have to understand that he has ingredients for this recipe that bring a power punch at the end better than smoked jerky, okay? There's some strength to a great recipe. But marriage is a construct of God that comes laden with strength from heaven. It is covenantal in nature. A biblical church family also is established as Christ, who is seen as the husband, appoints apostolic leadership that establishes the local church known as the bride of Christ that then leads people into new life like children, new life in Christ, sons and daughters in the faith, and then disciple them to maturity. Amen? Can you see the mirror image going on there? It is also more than a social construct. This is a covenant relationship. We are made one by the blood and body of Christ. You said I do to him when you said I'll follow. And you said I do to the church family as you did that and were baptized by the leaders in your church. It is not a social construct. It is breathed from the mouth of God. Christ is husband, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. The church is bride, 2 Corinthians 11, 2. Believers are sons and daughters. We see that in 2 Corinthians 6, 18. Collective church becomes the family of believers. We see that in 1 Peter 2, 17. Apostolic leaders serve as church fathers, and the church body are sons and daughters. As Jenny and Corey lead their family, and they have children, Rowena and I, as we were called to plant this church, became the father and the mother of this church. And as we established the highest level of leadership in the church, which are overseers, okay, or scripturally elders, and that would be specific to the male side of things, that highest level of leadership, we have planted the church. And so we serve as the lead pastors. We are always in the process of trying to win people as children to God and children of the house. House, and as they grow and they mature, they all step into positions of leadership. We had teenagers leading this morning, yes. and we validate their ministry because our, our involvement in the house of God is not, oh, the little kids back there, and then women's ministry over here, and men's ministry over here, and then there's the youth group who are really rebels apart from everything. It's the church, just like it's your family. There are no there are no less important people in the relationship. So as the apostolic leaders, they, uh, they lead to bring up sons and daughters. The mirroring is so specific that leadership in the church requires successful leadership in the family. Check out this verse, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1, 4, and 5. This, the, tr the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of, and this is key, overseer. And this is about governance. This is not just talking about leadership. This is talking about, again, that apostolic leadership or actually that eldership leadership. It's governance at the end of the day. It says if you aspire to that position, you desire a noble thing. It's like if you aspire to be a dad, it's also a noble thing. Are you tracking with me? 
mirror images of one another. He goes on to say, in order to do this task, what does he need to be quali- how does he qualify himself? He must manage his own household well. Well, what has that got to do with it? Everything. Because it goes on to say, if he does, well, let me not skip over anything. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And we'll talk about that word in a few minutes. Doesn't mean a collar, dragging them around, go left, go right. It's actually serving his kids in a way that inspires them, still connected to them. He's still the dad. He is leading them. And yet he is serving them, and they walk with him because they know he is father. Trust him that God's best will come through that relationship, right? So, so, but amen. You can tell your kids, be submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And I cannot tell you how important that scripture has been to Rowena and I. I've made this statement. If our family is failing, you will not see me up behind this desk. I will not be leading this church because this scripture has been burned into my heart. And it's why I put way more time into being a great husband and a great dad than to being a great pastor. Because one thing, I'll just say this, and I don't mean this meanly in any way, shape, or form. We are family, but I have found that this kind of family will, in different times, they will make decisions to leave this family. But my family will never leave me. Amen? And so that becomes the first thing God's not going to say, okay, Steve, did, you're in heaven now. Uh, welcome. Now let's talk about the church you pastored. That's not the first thing on the agenda. My first agenda with him is how did I, what did I do with his son, this amazing love? And then how did you deal with your wife? How did you treat your wife? How did, you, did you love your wife like Christ loved the church? And then it's my kids. The church body itself is incredibly important. But in my world, in my list of priorities, it's a little bit farther down the list. And it should be on yours too. But yet it's very high on the list. I'm not saying it doesn't have value. But if you can't manage your house, you're unqualified to manage the church. God set that priority. He didn't say if you're qualified to lead that church, then you're probably a great dad. He says you need to be a great dad, great husband, lead your family well if you aspire to this particular position. Okay, point number two. Man, I've, uh, I think I'm on page one and a half right now. I've got 17 more to go. Thank you. Okay, the enemy, his, one of his primary tactics is to distort the biblical family. Both families. Why? Because they're mirror images of one another. They're covenantal relationships. Everything that God is doing in the world, especially in the New Testament, is is strengthened and empowered out of the family and out of the church family. Both. They're they're together. They're joined together. So how does he he really distort the biblical family? Because if you can distort the family, then it doesn't function correctly, and then it loses its strength and power, right? And so the first thing that he does is he, de- he, he causes the family to be devalued in our minds and within our culture. Getting married in our culture is beginning to be looked down upon, even avoided. It's seemingly unnecessary to go through, you know, some, some repeat after me. Why get married? There's less tax advantages. And divorce is a lot harder than just breaking up. Besides, we love each other, and God already knows that. However, that is completely contrary to Scripture. Go buy a car with those thoughts and drive off the lot and see what happens because there is some actual legal structure to the decisions that we make that makes it official. 
right? Okay, Proverbs 18 gives strong value to marriage. In fact, it says this, he who finds a wife, get ready, guys, this is your opportunity, finds a mm, good thing. Amen. Tyler wins the prize. I want Jennifer to know this man right here allowed us to amen. And what else comes with it? And he obtains favor from the Lord. There is a deposit from heaven when you do God's plan according to all of his recipe, he deposits downward a special endowment, a special blessing, a special, it, it's bigger than me handing you $1,000 at your wedding. He receives favor from the Lord. It's not there and then suddenly it is. When you do it God's way and you live off of that your entire life, it's a deposit that keeps accruing interest. Amen. Okay, also, that's why Hebrews 13, 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Why? Because there's this constant devaluing. I don't need no ball and chain. Mister, if you ever refer to your wife around me that way, you're going to accidentally trip. Now, it'd be accidental. <laughs> you know how one of the greatest measures of a man, how does he speak of his wife when she's not around? How does he speak to her face? Because you know why? What does Jesus have to say about me? And as imperfect as I am, he says, you are my son, my chosen son. The apple of my eye, the affections of my heart. Tell you what, you, you think, well, my wife doesn't deserve all the compliments that I would give her. Well, let me tell you something. You can look at the plant and say, you look dry. You need to turn yourself around or you can pour some water on it and help it to become the plant that God intends it to be. That's completely free. It's not only a devaluing of the family. <laughs> He's on fire. Uh, not only a devaluing of the family, but it's a rewriting of the recipe. I cook a few things. And I always follow the recipe, but I can promise you when I don't, it does not look like on the plate what it looked like in that picture. <laughs> the world continues to attempt to create this thing called family that's not biblical family. It's a, it's a knockoff of family while ignoring the biblical formula for marriage. Rewriting the key ingredients that make biblical marriage, including the number of people in the marriage, the genders of the participants, their roles, and their treatment of one another. Did you hear that? We are instructed heavily in scripture on how to treat our wives, how wives respond to their husbands, how we treat our children. And just because you have a title does not mean you can treat people inappropriately because you'll find out that your title doesn't mean anything. If you can't serve in a way that inspires people to go after the thing that you actually are knowing is best for their lives. The rewriting all of these things, uh, the roles, the treatment of one another, which then only deteriorates the integrity of what is created by the couple and the family, leading to a lifetime of struggle, divorce, and single-parent families. You want the best? Do it according to God's recipe. Amen? And that applies across the board to everything, your finances, your business, everything, okay? Okay, the enemy, uh, next step. And the enemy continues to distort the biblical church family. Oh, 
Let me get it on now. <laughs> How so? Same way. Devaluing the family. The very word church is the word ecclesia. And it actually means the collective gathering of God's people. When we say the church, that's what it means. I am not the church and you are not the church. I've heard that going around. That is biblically incorrect. We collectively are the church as we gather, not only on a Sunday, but as we gather together to do life as a biblical church family. There is an attempt to minimize the necessity of gathering as a church in person. Recently, someone said to me, you know, church isn't just what happens inside this room. And my response to them was, that is absolutely true. But without this room and what happens in here, there is no church. It's just a bunch of friends touching base and hanging out. And there is value in that. I'm not taking anything away from that, but it does not carry the same mandate, authority, or power from God to impact this world. Are you hearing me? I love having friends, but not all of my friends are part of the church, okay? Now, let me get even more controversial, as if that wasn't possible. He didn't die for you. He died for us collectively, Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for us. Amen? Amen. Hebrews 10.24 and 25 reminds us not to neglect meeting together, okay? Now, I realize we've gone through a season. I'm not, I am not throwing rocks, but I will make a few statements. Because if you understand the enemy's attempt in the world during this last season, you will begin to see the fragmentation of the local church and it is straight out of the playbook of the enemy, okay? Uh, online church, which we are enjoying this morning, this is not a slam on anyone who is watching. It's an explanation of flying up to 30,000 feet and looking down to see what's actually going on. Online church is not church as God truly intends. I'm not saying it doesn't have value. It's had tremendous value in this last season. Online church is only as valuable to the biblical church family as FaceTime is to your marriage and your relationship with your kids. Smack diggity. Again, I'm not trying to make a statement. There are reasons for using FaceTime. You're off. You can't get around family. You are sick. There are situations going on. But how long is that sustainable for your marriage or your kids? I know one thing, you ain't going to give birth to a child that way. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see truly online. I, I know that people give their life to Christ, but do they really become a part of the church family? Biblically speaking, not if they never step into the assembly of God's people with extenuating circumstances not taken into account. People who are absolutely not ever to make it there can have a relationship with Christ, okay? If you uh, want to pick on any one sentence I say, you will find something to pick on, I'm sure. Collectively, listen to what I'm saying. Okay, I'm going to skip that point because that's too controversial. I don't even have the guts to go there. No, no, no. I'm, no, no. no, I think I wrote that point in the flesh. It wasn't a point. It wasn't a point. It was just a little bit of a, uh. so I'm going to skip that. 
Uh, so devaluing of the church. And you hear that all the time. I don't need to go to church to experience God. Right? Well, I'll tell you one thing. If you don't go to church, you are not going to push anything out of you into someone else's. God intends. The reason why we gather is not so that we can become consumers. It's so the Bible says we gather so that you can ponder how to stir up one another towards love, love and good deeds. You can talk to God and God can talk to you out in the woods. But who are you ministering to and changing and impacting with the gospel out there? Bambi is probably not crawling up to hear what you have to say. So... So there's a rewriting of the recipe, the complete, I want to say this, the complete defamilization of the local church. They're mirror images. There's the family of you, and then there's the family of God, and it's supposed to be family images, and you've heard for years as you've been a part of our church family, we say that all the time, family, family, family. Why do we say that? Well, because that is the biblical picture of church, but the modern day has defamilized the church. The model of the church has departed from being mothers and fathers giving birth, creating disciples who then give birth to develop more disciples. We've, we've jumped out of that model, the family model, to being business owners that focus on attracting, satisfying, and retaining happy customers. In America, the average person changes churches every six years when they're no longer satisfied with a customer experience. I'm not talking about you. You're here. In America, oh, I already said that. Maybe it needs to be repeated. No. Uh, we want church leadership to be like staff at a spa, but sadly, church leaders are too afraid to respond appropriately. And so instead, they run around to try to make everybody happy so no one leaves when, if you really think about it, how did mom and dad respond to that expectation when you were nine years old? <laughs> instead of functioning to shape you into the image of Christ, we've turned church into Mac church where you expect to be able to have it your way and every meal is a happy meal <laughs> until it isn't. And then I crawl across the street to Burger King. <laughs> Let me say this. Discipleship, and that's the key, raising children. Man, oh, day, if you ask your kids, what do you want for dinner every night? <sighs> that's not the, you, you raise your children. Well, maybe you do. Maybe some of you do. So, hey, sorry. Yeah, they probably want vegetables knowing your kids. Okay. So just <laughs> raising children and, and building believers is 90% discipleship is 90% encouragement. And your kids, it should be probably that ratio. Encouragement, encouragement, encouragement. But 10% is adjusting and shaping for the better. That's discipleship. Some people use the word correction. I've toned it down to make it more politically correct. Shaping and adjusting. See what I did there? Shaping and adjusting. How many of you know when somebody's shaping and adjusting you, we don't really like it a whole lot, right? In theory, God does the shaping, Proverbs 3.12, for the Lord reproves whom he loves. But in practice, God typically adjusts and shapes us through our spiritual leaders, through our mom and dad, through our leaders, our pastors, those who are over us in the Lord on every level all the way up to that highest governance level, the overseers. When attempting to adjust, I've actually got this pushback. And for me, I've actually not been uh, as strong of a discipler as I should be. I've often discipled by suggestion. Hey, you know, uh, 
just, just, a, just some insight. I, I want to recommend that maybe, and I've presented so much of my pastoral input with people that way. Because I know what it is to have somebody come at me with a machete. And so in like form, like I've done many times, as I've experienced the bad, I swing the pendulum to way over here so that I'm not like that guy. And in doing so, if you are a parent that grew, under, grew up under the strong disciplinary hand of an ogre, you're like, oh, I'm not going to be like that. And you end up letting your children do whatever they want. And that is equally as dangerous and bad. And in the local church, the same is true. There's important moments. It's probably only the 10%. But in leaning in to be able to say, hey, I need to talk to you. There's something you need to stop doing. And the pushback comes, well, who are you? Well, my response is, I thought I was your pastor. I thought I was. It is part of my God-given responsibility. It's not to be wielded inappropriately. God helped me to do it with the proper tone and the proper posture and, and ask the proper questions first. But from time to time, somebody's got to do that in your life spiritually. And if we're a family, guess who one of the people who will end up doing it is likely myself. I've watched strong pushback. Not, not This hasn't been directed specifically at me, but at, as I've talked with other pastors, because the person being adjusted and shaped recognizes that their leader isn't perfect and then thinks somehow that disqualifies them in their eyes to correct them. Okay, how many of you have imperfect parents? They're still your parents, right? They still have a God-given responsibility, right? And the truth is, and I've got a quote here for you to come up, refusal to allow your leaders to bring correction, or let's adjusting and shaping, because they have imperfections is nothing but a cover for pride, a lack of submission, and a spirit of unteachability. You can't tell me because you ain't got it all together either. Actually, they've been called by God to do that. Okay, can I jump to the next point? We doing okay? Yeah. Get a little sweaty. Is this, this, this good? Okay. Okay, our role as parents and church leaders is this. It's stewards. This is really important for you to grab onto. Um, your children are not yours. They do not belong to you. They, I'm going to say it again. They, do not be, they don't belong to you. They are his. They are his. They belong to him. It's easy for us to see Mary as a steward. When we read the scripture, you know, here she hadn't been with a woman. And uh, the scripture in, uh, in Luke chapter 1 gives the picture of the angel showing up. But the truth is, the interaction that happens here with Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit, the truth is, the same dialogue happens with every set of parents every time a child is, wait for it, not born, conceived. Human life is sacred. God is the one who breathes it. There might be a natural act that brings all the biology together, but just like the first man, the breath of life, the spark of life comes from heaven. That's why it's sacred regardless. Amen? So when I read this portion of scripture, I, I think it's easy for us to see Mary's walking around. She's got a baby in her womb, and it's God's son. And so she's like, she's basically the body. You know, she's the carrier of, the, of this thing. I would get Mary to come, the other Mary to come up here to demonstrate 
I've, I've never given birth, but I think it's probably pretty easy, right? So anyways, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm lying. I think, that was in, I think that was in the flesh too. I don't think I should have said that. But we really see, we really picture Mary as a steward because this, this baby really belongs to God. We talk about being God's son. And yet the truth is it applies to you as well. You were just a steward. And so I've written this where you can say, as if this is being spoken to you, as conception happens, an angel is speaking to you and saying, don't be afraid. You can put your name in there, not Mary, or if your name is Mary, you keep it. But if your name is whatever else, but use your name. <laughs> I went blank, couldn't think of any names. Uh, for, listen, you have found favor from God. That God would put the spark of heaven inside of you. Wow. Kids are amazing. Wow. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and you will bear son or daughter. And you shall call his name, insert your child's name there. I recommend Steve. <laughs> keep it going. Or Stevie. That's a girl. Stevie the third. Let the circle be unbroken, people. Val has already said that when she gets married, don't worry, his last name will have to be Parrish, so there can be a Stevie the third. She didn't actually say that, but I just prophesied that. So anyways. <laughs> now listen to this next part. He will be called, she will be called a son, daughter of the most high. <clears throat> That's you. I know you don't feel like it. You are a son and a daughter of the Most High. Before you even give your life to Jesus, you just haven't got the memo yet. So if you feel unworthy after you've read the memo and said yes, you need to get that wiring redone in your mind. You are a son or a daughter of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him or her the throne. God is going to give you the throne of his father David so that you can reign over the house of Jacob forever in your kingdom. That's your best life. Jesus had a mission. Your child's mission is different, but it is ruling and reigning over your best life, and there will be no end. Amen. Amen. That puts, the stewardship puts the relationship of husband and wife into proper perspective along with children. You will never, mom, dad, you will never care as much as he does. You will never love them as much as he does. Your plan will never be as good as his plan. You will never understand them the way that he does. You will never know exactly what they need, but he always will. You will never know the best plan for their lives, but he already does. You will never be sufficient for the task, but he always will be. And if he is part of the relationships, you are covered. The moment you start treating them like you own them is when you push God out and you take over. And that is not the recipe. Are you tracking? It's not. The, it's a It's a distortion of the recipe. They will never discover their identity in you, but they will always discover their identity in him. You gave them their natural name, Stevie, but God will give them their spiritual name, which is biblical and it's powerful and it's their true identity. 
You be who, and I have this quote for you, you be who you need to be and let God be who he needs to be so they can become who they are destined to be. Next point. I don't know what page we're on. Living as church family or living as family, they're the same thing, requires us to function in our biblical roles. Amen? For individuals to experience God at home, relational alignment according to scripture is critical. First and foremost, mom, dad, you need to be aligned with God for this thing to work, right? And then secondly, you need to be aligned in your family relationships according to the scriptural blueprint. Let me give you a few of those, although I don't have the time to cover everything known in scripture. Are we really at that time? Wow. I've got two minutes left. Well, I'm going longer today. Okay, so <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. And this is the interactions between husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And what I will say to you is this will require more submission in your life than actually the next verses I'm going to read to you. Without question. It goes on to say, he, Ephesians 5, 22, 23, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So anytime you want to think about how should husbands and wives interact, wives interact, I want you to look at the biblical example, how does Christ treat the church? How did Jesus treat people in truth and also in grace? He came to serve. He's leader, but he's servant. If you don't serve, you can have the title leader. You're going to find out it's not going to work real well. You will be despised. Men? Man has, I'll say this, man scripturally has the responsibility to lead. And I call that overall governance in the family, the response. Hear what I'm saying, responsibility. The manager at the store has the responsibility to manage the store. In the home, governance, the, 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 the ultimate responsibility falls on the husband. Why God has given that responsibility to him. Overall governance, while being united as one, with his wife, who has the responsibility to submit. Let me talk about the word submit. It is not the picture of an MMA chokehold leading to a tap out that's called forced obedience. And while the choke might not be legitimate, sometimes the posture is the same thing. There's not just the letter of the law, but there's the spirit of the law. Much more like I work with both hands, but I am right hand dominant in a task that still requires both hands. We are partnered together for a common outcome, connected to something that's truly the head. Because as a matter of fact, husband, you are not the head of your house. Christ is the head of your house. And she has a relationship with him that is closer than her relationship with you, as it should be. He is her first love. 
He, she relates with him, hears from him, interacts with him, obeys him first before you or I. I feel like I'm doing pretty good here, okay? <laughs> Discipleship in the family requires the proper arrangement of first governance, which is responsibility, but also actual um, duties that get done, which are just simply tasks that don't necessarily require a specific individual or gender to be able to perform. Let me, let me give you some examples of how husbands are also submissive. And in some cases are called by scripture to be submissive to their wives. Bet you didn't know that. Steve, you're a little wired today. Yes. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 4 says, The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And I want to make a point. This is not just sexual for those of you cheering at the top of your lungs at, at home. The word there is authority. Little woman, when I get home, I want my food ready for me. Because <laughs> that's what Jesus says when I say good morning, Lord, every day. It's just a different spirit. It's a different heart. The word authority over body. That's amazing. Now, the Bible goes on to say also the man has authority over his wife's body. It doesn't belong to her. There is a required mutual submission. Some of you guys are like, oh, okay, hey, I agree with that scripture now. It's like, am I the only one that gets taken advantage of? No, you, no, anyways. Sar sarcasm, it might not translate. Okay. Ephesians Chapter 5 says, uh, in verses 18 through 21, it talks about being filled with the Spirit. It's talking to the general church. It goes on to say in the process that as we're filled with the Spirit, talking to the church, male and female, it leads to submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, again, submission is not that highest level of governance always. Sometimes it's the agreement that you are leading this project, and regardless of your gender, I'm submitted to the project, submitted to the plan, okay? It's not an MMA chokehold. It's uh, two working as one, an honor and agreement. Of course, it goes on to say, uh, let me say this, with the scripture, a smart man will allow his wife to speak into his, lives, into his life in ways that bring adjustment. Did you hear what I said? A smart man will allow his wife to bring clarity from heaven out of scripture or from God in a way that he submits to. If he doesn't, he's a fool. Ephesians chapter 6 gives that same explanation, uh, verses 1 through 4, on how parents should interact with children. Okay, so let me move on. Next step. Function is, function in the home is not determined by gender, function. Governance is. The responsibility falls to men. It's your responsibility. How it plays out, how life actually unfolds, doesn't rely on gender at that moment. For example, well, it go, I go on to say, it's determined by the partnership, husband and wife, connected with individual skill sets. The store manager is like, doesn't necessarily have to stock the shelf. 
he has someone stock the shelf, but maybe sometimes he does stock the shelf. As the pastor, the, the governance of the church, a lead elder in the church, I just kick out my edicts and dictates. I show up on work day and I help it to serve. And there are times where I encourage people to take leadership and I step back. Why? Because they're way better at that thing than I am. Only a fool says, I'm the man, I'm in charge, I make all the decisions, do what I say. So the function's not determined by gender. It's a partnership. And a good husband leads his family into a mutual function. Just because the husband is responsible before God doesn't mean he should be the one doing the checkbook. Amen. <laughs> Just because she's a woman doesn't mean she should be the one cooking. Don't say amen, guys. Don't go get there. The function, it doesn't really matter. It was weird culturally the last decade to see women driving around men because in my generation, I'm the man, I've got to be able to drive. But I've seen some of you guys how you drive. You need to let your wife drive. Amen. It's not a lack of submission or a usurpation of authority. It just simply function. In fact, let me say this. For those of you who are nervous about how some of the change, I don't agree with all the cultural changes, but I'm going to tell you what, the 50s really didn't reflect scripture in the family. When you go, go, go and read Proverbs 31 to discover the virtuous wife, and it'll show you she is a boss lady out in the marketplace, buying and selling and making stuff. And yet she's submitted to the governance of her home, but that looks a little bit different than what we've grown up to see as a stereotype. The husband's motive for everything that he does is to serve, and serving means positioning people to do what they are best gifted to do. Both have the shared task of raising their children to experience the Lord. Both voices are necessary for proper growth and development. It's not the wife's job to go and pray with the kids at night. It's a shared responsibility. And dad, your voice is so critical. Don't get into the trap where only dad disciplines. Don't do that. Share it appropriately. Now, there'll be some things that you're better at. Maybe, dad, you shouldn't be doing the hair. <laughs> but then again, maybe you should. <laughs> I have a lot of experience with hair, and I can tell you that if you need help, I've got input. <laughs> All of this applies to the church as well. Christ is the head of the church. In essence, he is the husband. Everyone else, even leaders included, are the bride. But then in the actual function of the local church family, I already read you the scriptures. It talks about the overseer. It's like the husband of the family. It's the highest level of biblical eldership as given. Uh, it's given the responsibility of governance according to scripture. Governance. That's that final decision. If, we've, if we can't figure out what to do, I, it's my responsibility to hear from God, but it's also my responsibility to talk with my wife. You just throw something out. This is what we're going to do. You, you're a good husband if you can bring your wife along the journey. You've served well. It's not about manipulating her. That won't work. It's about being partnered with her, serving her, having the discussions, valuing her input, letting her speak, okay, and then ultimately overseer has a responsibility, but their proper leadership of their 
natural family qualifies them. In fact, their family is highly involved within their personal function. Again, read the verse at the very beginning. And uh, if I can't do this well, then I can't do this well. But actually, this is carried into this. We've always called our elders, or who would be the highest level of overseers, we don't call him, him the elder. We, we really kind of refer to it as an eldership family. Because you want to serve at that level, you ain't doing it alone. Just not. The highest level of leaders in the churches, they're not the bosses who tell everyone what to do. As the husband is head of the home, he leads by laying down his life for the bride, the church, just like Jesus did. When I speak of this, I trust me, I'm not talking about specifically me. I'm just talking about the office of elder, of overseer. This is a position of governance, again, not function. Function is who makes the meals, who runs some of the basic ministries. Governance is those hard, tough, highest things, which I'll hit in a moment here. The disciples, the apostles, the original overseers and elders who planted churches, specifically those individuals were men. They were just establishing, determining doctrine. They were discipling as, or they were uh, meeting out discipline as needed. They determined and installed leadership. They were governing, but they were not necessarily leading in function at that very highest level. We go a step further with a slide. Function is Function in the church is not determined by gender. It's determined by the mutual partnership and individual skill sets as encouraged by the overseers. Does that make sense? Ultimately, the elders of the church determine doctrine. They determine a flow for your future, the, 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 the final responsibility to know for you, to help you and any high-level correction that needs to be done, like kicking someone out of the church for a moral sin. That falls to the responsibility of the elders. But once those things are established and the box is created, the family functions within the box. And just by functioning in the box is all submitted to what's been established. And that's what the early apostles did. That's what the early disciples did. They're functioning as, they, they were operating as governance, as elders. But it takes more than a dad's voice to raise a family. Okay? I'm going I'm to I'm take five more minutes. But I like the background music. It makes me, it's mood music. It takes more than a dad's voice. Women in ministry in the local church is historically documented historically documented. All believers were commanded to preach the gospel. Not just women go talk to women, children go talk to children, men go talk to men, or men can talk to everybody, but you, you get, we were all commanded to go out and preach the gospel. Declare what is already within the box. It's not a usurpation of authority, it's functioning under authority to go out and preach the gospel, ladies. Mm. Women, the woman at the well was commanded to get up and go tell her city. The men in the city, they came and discovered Jesus because she was a radical, on fire, street corner preacher. And God 
called her, commanded her, anointed her, blessed her. Today she's in heaven enjoying the rewards along with the people who are the reward. How about this? Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. It shall come to pass afterward. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men, whoo, there's hope for me. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Pour out your spirit for what purpose? Just to be able to run the bake sale? Come on, spirit of God, so valuable. Husbands and wives are prophesying in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Every man who prays prophesies. He talks about head uncovered, but that's not pertinent to what I'm saying. But every wife who prays or prophesies, women in the church prophesying, declaring what God is saying. And it was collective together it was happening. And I know there's some other scriptures I'll get to in a moment. This is a woman shouldn't even speak in church. She should be silent. It's abhorrent that she would say anything in church. Well, clearly there's something maybe we don't know to make this all work because these women were prophesying in church. And Paul said, I wish that you all would prophesy. Come on. How about Priscilla and Aquila? Paul met them, won them. In Romans chapter 16, he sends a letter. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Don't tell me that because later on we get to see that they have a church that meets in their garage. Greet also the church in their house. It, it's not saying that, okay, he was basically doing all the stuff and she was quietly supporting. Go, husband, go, go. That's not a fellow worker. In fact, Paul over and over in New Testament scripture speaks of women as co-laborers in the gospel. That's beyond just running the nursery. In fact, let me say this. For those of you who are nervous about a woman speaking to church, you should be more nervous about a woman speaking to our children because our children are malleable and are in that formative stage in false doctrine to our children is far more dangerous to someone like you who has read, has access to scripture, and has already established to a degree some of your teaching. So I say, maybe the real thing that needs to happen is the men go teach kids church. A woman prophesied over Paul, Acts chapter 21, verse 8, 9. He goes into someone's house. He met a man who had four daughters who were prophetesses. Recognized by the church in the formal function, not governance, because the fivefold ministry, which includes prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, that, that section, that's not governance. That is actually function. They're functioning positions. And so they were recognized as prophetesses. And they prophesied over Paul the apostle. Mm, I love it. In fact, Priscilla Kill, I already mentioned them. The Bible says in Acts chapter 18, there was a man named Apollos who was a powerful preacher, but he got into some false doctrine because he never experienced discipleship underneath Paul. And Priscilla and Aquila, in that portion of scripture, the Bible says they began to speak to him and explain to him the way of God more accurately. Priscilla was 
functioning in leadership to shape and adjust a recognized apostle. And I will tell you that Apollos would have said to her, thank you for your ministry to me. Because now my ministry is solid where it had some leaks in it before that. Faithful co-laborers, I already mentioned that to you. All kinds of tons of scripture. How about Phoebe? Phoebe is mentioned in the end of book of Romans, chapter 16, verses 1 through 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon. Didn't say elder, but it said deacon. In some, some portions of scripture, it says servant, but the Greek word is diakonos. It's leadership within the church, in the church in Kenteria. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been faithful, she has been helpful to many, especially to me. Scholars believe that she delivered Paul's letter to the church in Rome in written form and stood up before them and declared every word boldly to the house of God there. So let me hit quickly, 1 Timothy. 2.12, I do not permit a woman to speak, to teach or to exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. The, word, the use of the word teach connected with exercising authority is speaking about stepping into a position of governance. I do not permit a woman to teach, or the actual word is to take authority. It's not even just to exercise, but take authority I don't allow a woman or a man to come into this house and inappropriately exercise that type of authority. I'm preaching, not in teaching, not in any area. It's a usurping of authority. In other words, Paul had drawn out in the box of what is within bounds for the gospel to be preached, and he doesn't allow anyone. He mentions woman here in this case for sure, but anyone in this house, we have doctrine that's already set. Let anyone, child, man, woman, anybody step up. It's usurping the authority if they begin to preach outside of the guides of what we've made decisions for. Same is true of your kids at home. It works the same way. It's usurping authority. We've made decisions. This is how it's going to go. We commit to this. I've got a brand new plan. We're no longer going to go, you know, really, who are you? And it gets corrected by mom and dad. The ultimate governance of the church, as I've already said, is a man's responsibility, but the function is not limited to men. It includes women. The church needs the voice of women. The pulpit can, here, this is critical for this scripture that you're looking at. The pulpit can be a place where governance does speak from. Preaching can be a moment where governance is being pushed out, where discipline or doctrine is being established. But not everything shared from the pulpit or in teaching or preaching is governance. Anything not in line with governance in any of those contexts should be dealt with immediately. But the pulpit is also the place of testimony, encouragement, teaching. What is teaching? Teaching is a relaying of what governance has decided is the message for this church. Dad, you have to make that ultimate decision. You need your wife to help you to bring the message to everyone because you as the man are not going to be effective if it's only a male voice. My phone rings sometimes, and it will be my daughter, one of my daughters, getting help. And then that same daughter at other times will call up her mother. Recently, one of my daughters called her mother 
for extended conversations and I knew what was going on. And when it was all over and it came to a good, healthy resolution, I mentioned to my daughter, I said, I knew what was going on. I'm so glad you called mom because you already know what I would have said, but it would not have been helpful because you didn't need to fix it. You needed encouragement. The pulpit is also a place of testimony, of prophecy, of encouragement, of teaching. There's no restriction on age or gender in this house. There's a restriction on submission and maybe some maturity, depending on what it is. And if there were somebody to go outside of the lines, male, female, young or old, we would deal with that. I've had to do it a few times. It's been a while. Who's next? Okay. So why did Paul write to Timothy telling him he doesn't permit it when actually historically it had happened? Well, let me give you this verse. This is a fascinating verse. I'm going to be done by 1045. You okay with that? This is a great scripture that will blow your mind. Answer not. Say with me not. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Next verse. Answer a fool according to... No, no, no. Dave, back. Sorry. I... I Previous verse. There you go. Next sentence. It's actually the second verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So don't answer a fool in his folly, but answer a fool in his folly. Which one am I supposed to do? I'm dealing with a fool right now. Do I answer him or not answer him? What do I I do? I'm so confused. Let me say... Bottom line, it comes down to context. There's a right time to answer a fool in his folly, and there's sometimes a time when you shouldn't mess with it. You follow God. You have a heart for God. You understand what it is that God wants to do through you, and so sometimes you answer and sometimes you don't. You have to make that decision because it's all about context. Some scriptures apply to all peoples of all times, while other scriptures apply to only a specific people in a specific moment. And so you are going to actually have to figure out in this verse, which moment am I in? How do I know what? How do I know which to do? Well, what does the rest of the Bible teach? What is the context of this fool? What is the context of anything that's happening? So Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus to Timothy when he says, I don't permit a woman to teach. Do some studying on Ephesus, what happens in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19. There is a temple there for Diana. And as Paul is effective and it begins to impact the trade of all the idols, they get angry and they form a mob and they begin to chant for two hours straight. Great is the God of Artemis and they want to stone Paul. Why? Because the very epicenter of their culture is this temple. And this temple is run solely by women who are solely prostitutes, who the form of worship is to the goddess of fertility. It is not, it is more than, it is the, it is more than just a cultural thing on the side street. This is the very essence of their city. They dress a certain way. They act a certain way because that is what this culture is based on. And then Paul shows up and new people start coming into this brand new church. Paul's still establishing doctrine. He's trying to win people to Christ, to shape their culture. And these new people start coming in. But when they come in, they 
become part of the family. They start serving and growing. But guess what? They're not fully discipled. I remember back in the 80s, if somebody came into the church with a tattoo, my gosh, you knew they had a past. You never asked them about it. Now, of course, you've been saved one year and you're a worship leader. You got to... <laughs> that was the 80s I'm talking about, right? And so in this setting, guess what it would have looked like? You got these women who are dressed in a way that conveys, I'm available, let's go, let's worship together, who are used to, a usur to having governance authority in their temple, showing up and thinking that it's going to translate the same, not knowing the ways of God with, and I'll show you in scripture, dressed like they were still a part of the world. And that's the context in which Paul is speaking. In fact, let me give you 1 Timothy chapter um, 2 verse 8 through 10. There it is. I desire that this is the verses before women shouldn't speak. So listen to this. I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. It's all part of the same text. Likewise, that women should adorn them, should not, should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold pearls or costly attire but that which is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now in our culture, I was looking at a video from Wednesday night, our students, we had a young, one of our precious young gals over on the piano, she had braided hair. This doesn't apply to her because the braided hair does not mean the same thing. This is a different context. But specifically in that context, it was communicating something that needed to be shaped and adjusted. And it wasn't just the braided hair. It wasn't just the gold earrings. It was the whole stature, persona, enforcing leadership and women coming in. And Paul was making an adjustment in this setting, in this context. You know, if I was planning a church in Salt Lake City, Utah, there'd be a different group of people coming into that brand new church than in Jacksonville, Florida. So there would be some things I would tell the pastors that we send there to make sure you watch out for that would not apply to over here. They're both relevant because we need to deal over here with a fool according to their folly, but we don't need to deal with a fool over here according to their folly. Just really quick, um, it's especially about context. Worship, the sexuality of the idolatry of Diana. It wasn't a preaching or teaching issue. It was an Ephesus issue. It's not a everybody, all places, all times issue. Modesty is, but the actual braided and gold and in this church, women not speaking, teaching. I don't have time to get to it. First Corinthians chapter 14 falls in a similar context. So stand with me. I did not get, what page am I on here? Did I get halfway through? I didn't even get halfway through? I'm almost? Okay. This is, I just, let me, let, I'm going to stay back, okay. Do it God's way, and there will be an amazing deposit. If you are a leader, serve. Many of you have grown up in manipulation, and so you model manipulation in your leadership, and that's why you're rejected. Serve. Serve. Continue to serve your family. Serve your spouse. And you'll experience the download of heaven that will allow you to take the blessing that's poured into you and impact not only your family in a remarkable way, but impact the church and then the church 
out of the four walls of the church to see that that endowment make the difference like it did for these women in Ephesus. This church turns out to be one of the most amazing churches when you read the scriptures. In fact, one of my favorite books, the book of Ephesians. Amazing. Spiritual, profound things that God does there. Why? Because Paul told Timothy as the elder, get this thing aligned. And when he got it aligned, when you get your family aligned, when we have the church aligned, there's proper governance, but there's generosity and function. Mom's voice matters, dad's voice matters, points especially kids' voice matters. We're in this together. We're mutually submitted in lots of cases. It allows for our best life. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our pastors, leaders, and what we do at C3 Church, visit our website at c3swwa.com.